So here in a few hours, you will all gather and watch the Super Bowl. And by the way, a little pastoral side note, please go watch the Super Bowl with people who don't know Christ. Go watch the Super Bowl with people who don't come to church. Go use this as one of the few opportunities that our suburban society has left that people want to get together. Go do it, okay? Now, back. You're going to watch the Super Bowl, and in both end zones, and possibly multiple times, you're going to see someone holding up a poster that says John 3.16, right? And I remember, as a small child, looking at my mom and going, what does John 3.16 say? And so we got out the Bible, and we looked it up, and, and yeah, we were that kind of family that had to look it up, so don't judge us, okay? But we got it out, and we looked it up, and I was like, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever should believe should have not perish, but have eternal life. And I was like, now what does that have to do with football? And nobody could give me a good answer. But I think what it has to do with football is technically nothing, but this is our testimony. This is our gospel. This is our truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came at great expense to himself so that all who would believe in him would have life and life everlasting and no longer stand under condemnation and no longer stand under the judgment of God. That is the gospel. That is the bedrock truth upon which the church of Jesus is built, and that is the bedrock truth upon which Redeemer hopefully is being built, and that is the bedrock truth upon which hopefully your lives are being built. And so my challenge this morning is to preach the most common, most known, most quoted passage in all the earth in a way that A, is heard and believed, but B, is not overly complicated because this is our truth. You know, in college, I went to a Christian college, and if you don't know anything about Christian colleges, most of the athletes there aren't Christians. They're just there because they want to play sports. And they would ask the girls' basketball team what their favorite verse was for the media guide. And like, like 12 out of 10 of them said John 3.16, right? Because that's just the only Bible verse they knew. So, so we're going to, this morning, dive in to this verse. And here's what we're going to see. What we're going to see in this passage is that the Son of God, whose name is Jesus Christ, came to the earth to purchase salvation for all who would believe in his name. And in this passage, we're going to see two ways to respond to Jesus. One is more commendable than the other. And my hope, as my hope for this whole sermon series, is that we walk out of here having seen God. That's the conviction. Why should we spend a year in the gospel of John? Because when we see God, people are changed. When we see God, we are changed. When we see God, stuff happens. I don't want you to come to church. I want you to come to church and see God. I don't want you to act religious. I want you to walk with Jesus because you've seen God. I pray that in a room this size, there are some of you who for the first time will see God and his greatness and his love and his mercy and his salvation and come to him. We all need to see Jesus. And so that is our prayer. And that's what I I pray you'll see this morning. So again, main point, Jesus came to bring God's salvation to all who believe in him. So how we respond to Jesus and how we are responding to Jesus is of the greatest importance. 
So for my note-taking friends, uh, two responses to Jesus. That's, that's the first point. Two responses to Jesus. Two things we need to see in this passage. So in this long passage, um, we see two characters, Nicod- a man named Nicodemus and a man named John the Baptist. And we see how, how both of them are responding to Jesus. And now, those of you that have been with us here at Redeemer, you'll remember that two Sundays ago, at the end of chapter one, we talked all about John the Baptist. And so, as I was studying this week, I was like, all right, why is this little piece of John the Baptist stuck over here in chapter three? Like, it would have made more sense to stick it back over there with all the other stuff about John the Baptist so that my sermons could be cleaner and simpler. You have the John the Baptist sermon, and then you have the other ones, right? So, why this separation? And I think the purpose of the separation is because John, not John the Baptist, but John who wrote this book, John who wrote this book wanted us to see John the Baptist and his response to Jesus juxtaposed against Nicodemus' response to Jesus so that we could see how we're to respond to Jesus. So, first, Let's look at Nicodemus. Actually, before we look at Nicodemus, let's go back to the end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. So if you haven't already, I would invite you to turn over to the Gospel of John in and, and chapter 3. But go back to the very end of chapter 2, and let's remember what John has just told us. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That's those who are coming to him, because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what John is telling us is Jesus is able to to perceive how people are really responding to him. And what we're going to see in his response to Nicodemus and in his his interactions with John the Baptist from from past tense, chapter 1, we're going to see Jesus looking directly and asking questions and pushing things to the point where he truly understands what is really going on. And so in verses 1 through 15, we're going to see Jesus' interactions with Nicodemus. And then in verses 22 through 30, we're going, to see G- we're going to see John the Baptist pop back up on the scene and see the way he is responding to Jesus. So let's start with Nicodemus, okay? Um, again, I don't want to bury the lead. Nicodemus is going at this point in the story— I think it does evolve as John's gospel goes on. But at this point in the story, Nicodemus is responding to Jesus as an intellectual, informed skeptic. Nicodemus is responding to Jesus as an intellectual, informed skeptic. So think corduroy jacket. Got got your, your, your fake leather here on the sleeves. Got a pipe in your hand. Sitting around by the fire. That's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is responding. By the way, I love all those things except the skeptic part. But Nicodemus is responding to Jesus as an intellectual, informed skeptic. John the Baptist will be responding to Jesus as a humble, believing disciple of Jesus. A humble, believing follower of Jesus. So so let's look at these together. So Nicodemus, we're told, is a religious leader of the Jews. So he is informed, he is trained, he is taught in the Old Testament scriptures, he is taught in the ways of the one true God, he is taught 
to look for the Messiah who was to come. He is taught to be on lookout for the kingdom of God, which is to come, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And so Nicodemus, we're told, this informed religious leader who doesn't at this point hate Jesus. He's not out to kill Jesus, but he has some questions for him. We're told that he comes by night to see Jesus. Now, look, so studying this week, like there are thousands of pages written about what it means that Nicodemus came by night. I think it means he came after the sun went down and before it came back up. Now, if there's some play on words about darkness and light and about evil and sin and about Nicodemus, that's fine. But when it says he came by night, I, th- I think it means he came after the sun went down. Now, why would you go somewhere by night after the sun went down when there are no street lights and when there are no car headlights and when there are no flashlights? You would go somewhere by night either because you had an immediate need or because you didn't want to be seen. And I think what we can learn from this is that that Nicodemus was a man with mixed allegiances. He was part of the religious leaders. He was part of the Jewish leadership. And yet, he at least wanted to find out a little bit more about Jesus So he went by night. By the way, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that we should look at Jesus and say, I mean Nicodemus and say, well, that's terrible. You should come by day. It's very possible that some of you here today are informed intellectual skeptics about the claims of Jesus. And I would say, I'm so glad that you're here. And I would say that Jesus is willing to engage your questions. I would say that he's willing to engage your doubts. I would say that your unbelief doesn't scare him at all. And it's okay if you come by night. It's okay if you come in secret. It's okay to, because if you're coming to Jesus, you are coming to the source. So Nicodemus comes by night, and this is what he says, and I don't think there's any falseness in this. He says, chapter 3, verse 3, Truly I say to you, I'm sorry, I need to go back. Chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, which is a sign of, of respect, If Nicodemus thought Jesus was a crazy lunatic, he would not have started by saying rabbi. So rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So so Nicodemus is recognizing that there is a power at work in Jesus that is unique. He's recognizing that there's a power at work in Jesus that's not explained just by human reason. But again, how you go from that statement to Jesus' response leaves our minds scratching our heads a little bit unless we remember that Jesus knows what is in every man, including Nicodemus. And so this is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, beginning in verse 3 and following, that the kingdom of God is here. Meaning, kingdom of God, the king who is to come to bring God's blessing to God's people that lasts forever is here. And the only way to become part of this blessing is with a second birth. The only way to become a part of this 
blessed work of God through this blessed Son of God for all of eternity is through a second birth. And we as modern Americans, we hear that and we go, oh, second birth, that's, that's good. Like, not the first one. Mm, I need to think about that. I need to chew on that. But to Nicodemus, this was a shot right in the heart of his identity. It was a shot right in the heart of everything that he believed made him beloved. Everything that he believed set him apart. Everything that made him unique in the world was that he was physically born a descendant of Abraham. He was physically born a descendant of David. He was physically born part of the people of God who were in this line of Abraham. And Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders of this community because of how he was born. Because of his DNA because of his bloodline. And Jesus, knowing Nicodemus, looks right at him and says, you need a second birth. Which what that implies is, you're not a child of God by your first birth. You're not a child of God by your status in the community. And you're not a child of God in any other way except that the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus, makes you a part of God's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you're lacking. You're separated. You need something that you don't have. You need second birth. So what Jesus has done is he, on one level, has leveled the playing field because he says the natural birth of every human, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, is inadequate to make you a child of God. Period. Nicodemus, you need a second birth. To which I would say to all of us, We need a second birth. The second birth is something that the Spirit of God does in the heart of a person as they respond to Jesus in faith. No one is accepted into the kingdom in the presence of God without something miraculous happening from the outside. What Nicodemus needed and what we all needed and what we all need is miraculous intervention from God. So, Nicodemus in verse 9 looks at Jesus and says, how can these things be? Now, I don't know which tone of voice to read that in. 
Perhaps there's the genuine. How can these things be? And perhaps there's the dismissive smart aleck. How can these things be? You can decide. Because either way, Jesus responds in this way. He says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm saying. No one will enter the kingdom and no one will have life unless they believe in the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite distinction for himself, who will be lifted up to provide salvation. That's verses 13, 14, and 15. And there is so much buried in there that we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But, but hear this. Nicodemus has come to Jesus as an informed, intellectual skeptic, and he's walked away being told that he needs second birth, and the only way to get this second birth is by believing that Jesus is the Son of Man lifted up to provide salvation. So, with Nicodemus, as I said, he, this, there's some commendable things here. He came to Christ. He came to Christ seeking answers. But he came needing second birth, and he left needing second birth. And so let's remember that our faith is rooted in the second birth, the miraculous gift that God does in a human's heart whereby they come to faith, profess faith in Christ, and follow after Jesus. Nothing else brings us into the kingdom of God except a faith-filled second birth that only God can give. And the implications of this, friends, are so huge. What we need is not a little more moral purity. We need a second birth. What we need is not a little better church attendance. What we need is a second birth. What we need is not to tithe just a little bit more. By the way, we're always open to that. But what we need is not to tithe just a little more. What we need is a second birth. What we need is not to get our kids baptized so that we can feel good about them being baptized, but we need to point them to Jesus so that they can have second birth. Apart from new birth, we're missing the point of the gospel because the gospel is supernatural. The gospel is God supernaturally doing something in us that we can't do for ourselves. And Nicodemus, in all of his thoughts and in all of his intellect and in all of his teaching, missed, at least at this point, the second birth, which leads us then to John the Baptist. Verses 22 through 30. So, quick review. John the Baptist was born to, as a cousin of Jesus. It was said that he had a special role in the coming kingdom of God to prepare the way for the Savior, to prepare the way for who we know as Jesus the Christ. And John did his ministry faithfully and dutifully to the point that in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke, Jesus is recorded as saying that there is no man greater who has been born of woman than John the Baptist. And what we see going on in this passage is people, Jesus is out in, in the wilderness ministering 
and teaching, and John the Baptist is out in the wilderness ministering and teaching. And John started first, and John had the crowd first, and John's numbers were better than Jesus' numbers, and his attendance was higher, and his loyalty numbers were higher, and his approval ratings on Twitter were higher. And then Jesus came and started stealing all of that. People were leaving John and going to Jesus. People were saying Jesus is greater than John. And so some of the disciples of John come to him and they say, Hey man, do you not realize that your following is being hurt by Jesus? Do you not realize that your popularity is taking a nosedive? Do you not realize that people are leaving you and they're going with him? And we're prone to be like, oh, dude, that is so sinful, so secular, so weak-hearted. But you all know you would say the same thing. And so listen to what John says. I, I, I want to read it word for word, and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 3, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive any, even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So what John is saying is he understands that his existence, his ministry, his calling, his place in the world, his success, his numbers, and his following, every ounce of it is a gift from God by grace. And he deserves none of it. So there's an appropriate humility before God in John. He understands that his role in the world is a gracious gift from God. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So what John is saying is this, I know who Jesus is and I know who I am. I know that Jesus is the Messiah. I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that Jesus is the bringer of God's kingdom. I know that Jesus is the bringer of God's blessing. And I know that my role is merely to point to him. So, so John knows who Jesus is, and John knows who he is. And so he makes this description of, man, the bridegroom at a wedding would never act like he's the groom. Man, can you imagine that? We're here for a wedding today. Bomp, bomp, bomp. Everybody stands. Down comes the bride. Dad's there. Bride's there. Mom's crying over here. And, and right as I say, who gives this man to be married to this woman, the best man jumps in front, throws an elbow, and is like, I'm here now. Like, you would have a genuine revolt on your hands, right? And rightfully so, because the bride, the best man exists to help the bridegroom celebrate his wedding. And all John the Baptist is saying is, look, the bridegroom's Jesus. The rest of the New Testament tell us that the bride is the church, the bride is the kingdom of God. And John exists to elevate Jesus, to elevate who Christ is, so that the bride delights in her groom, and the groom delights in his bride. Therefore, 
says John at the end of verse 29, this joy of mine is now complete. I find joy in all of these people leaving me because they're leaving me to go follow after Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John is going to respond to this scenario of Jesus stealing his people, metaphorically speaking, by recognizing his place is a gift from God, by by knowing who Jesus is, by knowing who he is, by delighting in the success of Jesus in building his church, and then taking the disciples' posture that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. One of my favorite pieces of art, and I'm no art connoisseur, so there's only like three to choose from, but one of my favorite pieces of art was painted by a man named Lucas Cronach, and he was a friend of Martin Luther. And Cronach painted this picture where, where Jesus on the cross is at the center. Center, C-E-N-T-E-R. And all the Old Testament characters and narratives are unfolding in the background of the cross. And standing under the cross of Jesus is John the Baptist, camel's hair, crazy outfit, pointing at Jesus. And then standing beside John the Baptist is a figure that nobody knows because it's Cronach himself. And Cronach has painted himself into the picture as an autobiography that he, like John the Baptist, exists to point to Christ because his place in the world is for Christ to increase and for him to decrease. And in this picture, Cronach is showing that that's only possible through the blood of Jesus because remember they pierced his side? The blood is flowing out of his side and falling on Cronach's head. And so what Cronach is saying is, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. And by being covered in the blood of Jesus, I have a place in this picture right beside John the Baptist and right in front of Abraham and right in front of Jacob and right in front of Moses and right in front of all the patriarchs and all the prophets because by the blood of Jesus, I belong to God. By the blood of Jesus, I'm a part of his kingdom. And my place in this world is to continually recognize that Jesus is the Savior. He must increase and I must decrease. So I know good Bible preaching is not supposed to make characters and be like, be more like this one and be less like this one. So I'm going to nuance it and I'm going to say this. That the gospel of Jesus has not yet ravaged Nicodemus. He's still an informed, intellectual skeptic with some legitimate questions about Jesus. And as I said earlier, if that's where you are today, I'm so glad you're here. Jesus will meet you there, and seeing him is what you need because seeing him is what Nicodemus needs, needed, and seeing him is what we all needed because we are a bunch of Nicodemuses who have now been covered in the blood of Jesus. 
And then we look to John the Baptist, and what we see in John the Baptist is a man who from the very beginning knew his place in the world, not because of some faux humility, but because he knew Christ is the Savior, Christ is the bringer of God's kingdom, Christ is the bringer of God's blessing, Christ is the bringer of salvation, Christ is the one who changes everything, and when we're covered in his blood, we're a part of his family, we're a part of his kingdom, we're a part of his work, And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so, therefore, with confidence and with humility and with joy, we point to Jesus and we say, come and see the Savior as he increases and I decrease. His kingdom will grow and so will my joy. And that's the invitation today, to have your joy grow as Jesus is exalted through you and to have your delight in being delivered from your sin grow as Jesus is exalted through you. So our posture in this world, our response to Jesus needs to be shaped like John the Baptist, one who is rightfully humbled by the grace of God, one who knows Christ and knows our place in this world, one who delights in in Christ's glory and Christ's fame, and one who with John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. And as we look to the scripture, as we look to the gospel of John, as as we prayerfully walk through this world, what spiritual maturity looks like is he must increase and I must decrease. And that's not fun to hear, is it? That's not fun to hear. But it is the will of God for those of us who belong to Jesus to walk through this world in such a way that our glory, our fame, our self-exaltation, our doing what we want, how we want, when we want for our joy would decrease so that his kingdom, his purposes, his glory could increase. And that's the first point. Who's ready for point two? We'll come back next week. Well, one of my staff members told me this week, there's no way you're finishing this sermon. I said... Yes, there is. But I was wrong. So running throughout this passage, what we didn't talk about and what we will talk about next week is that there is a particular way whereby we enter the kingdom and it is through faith in Jesus where the Spirit of God changes us and makes all things new.